Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Divine Father of the Whole Human Family. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 26, 2009. Amartya Sin Harvard professor and winner of the 1998 Nobel Prize in Economics, still remembers the day more than 60 years ago when Kader Mia stumbled into his family's yard in Dhaka, Bangladesh, bleeding from knife wounds, begging for help. His father rushed him to the hospital where he eventually died. Kader was a Muslim day laborer who was murdered by a Hindu thug. He was one of the thousands of people who died in Muslim Hindu riots that erupted in British India in the 1940s. Most of those rioters shared an economic class identity as disenfranchised poor people. But nevertheless, they still demonized each other with what Sen calls a singularist identity of violence that reduced their humanity to religious ethnicity alone. The illusion of a confrontational reality, writes Sen in his book Identity and Violence, had thoroughly reduced human beings and eclipse the protagonist's freedom to think. One might even read Sen's book as an extended exploration of this memory of his as a bewildered 11-year-old boy. Significant violence today is fomented by the illusion that people are destined to what Sen calls a sectarian singularity stereotyping people with one singular identity, he argues, leads to fatalism, resignation, and a sense that violence is inevitable. Caricaturing people with a singular dimension partitions people and civilizations into binary oppositions. It ignores the plural ways that people understand themselves and obscures what Sen calls our diverse diversities. In particular, he objects to the so-called clash of civilizations thesis popularized by Samuel Huntington. In his book, Identity and Violence, Sen argues against identity reduction and its violence in three ways. First, he observes that all people enjoy plural identities. To understand a person fully, we must consider a whole broad array of factors. Their civilization, religion, nationality, class, community, culture, gender, profession, language, politics, morals, family of origin, skin color, and on and on. In addition, these diverse differences within a single individual depend upon their social context. Whether the characteristic is durable over time or only temporary, how relevant it may or may not be in a given context, 
whether the trait's a function of constraint or free will, and so on. Second, sin, argues, er, sin urges us to transcend the illusion of destiny in identity violence by what he calls reasoned choice. <coughs> Instead of living as if irrational fate destined us to confrontation with others who are different, a person should make a rational choice about what relative importance to attach to any single trait. And third, sin appeals to our common humanity. Everyone laughs at weddings, cries at funerals, and worries about their children. More important than our many external differences, even though those differences are powerful, important, and often the source of good and not merely evil, more important than those external differences is our shared humanity. Christians, too, have partitioned humanity into us and them down through the centuries. But in his letter to the Ephesians this week, Paul makes a phonetic play on words that echoes sin's thinking. In Ephesians 1, 14 and 15, Paul says that God is the patera of every patria, the father from whom every family derives its name. God is not the God of Jews alone, or the God only of Christians, but rather, and here translators struggle, he's the father of all fatherhood, the father of every family, or the father of the whole human family, the patera of every patrio. He's the God of Muslims, Buddhists, and atheists. And in a curious phrase that I find more mysterious than obvious, Paul expands God's patrilineage even further. He says that the fatherhood of God embraces every family in heaven and on earth. Conversely, just as God is every person's father, so every human being is his child. To those who would partition people according to ethnicity, economic class, or gender, Paul writes that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, Galatians 3.28. Peter learned that as an observant Jew, he had to welcome even a Gentile like Cornelius, for, quote, God does not show favoritism but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Acts 10, 34-35 To those who would limit God's lavish love to the morally upright, Matthew says that God makes his, makes his Son rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5, 45 whether gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, Christian or Wiccan, Paul quotes a pagan poet to affirm that every single person is God's offspring. Acts 17.28 And the psalmist for this week rejoices that Yahweh is, quote, loving toward all he has made. 
Psalm 145.13 There's an internal logic to the good news. Since God created all things in heaven and on earth, Colossians 1.16, since he seeks the worship of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, Philippians 2.9-11, since he intends to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, Colossians 1.20, since he will sum up or bring together all things in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 1.10, then of course God delights in bestowing his fatherly favor on the whole human family in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 3.15. The psalm for this week makes just this point. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Psalm 145, verse 9. In fact, the word all and every occur 18 times in Psalm 145, extending God's bounty beyond every human family to the entire created cosmos. In his book, Velvet Elvis, Pastor Rob Bell of Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, reminds us that the Christian gospel of God's fatherly favor to every human being and to all creation is good news for everyone, especially, says Bell, for those who don't believe it. The church, he says, must stop thinking about everybody primarily in categories of in or out, saved or not, believer or unbeliever. Besides the fact that these terms are offensive to those who are the un and the non, says Bell, they work against Jesus' teaching about how we're to treat others. As the book of James says, God shows no favoritism. So we don't either. James 2, 1-13 And we might conclude, no exceptions allowed. And now for further reflection. Sin never explains why people partition the world into us versus them. Why do you think we do this? Have you ever been outed or excluded when someone reduced your own humanity to a so-called sectarian singularity? How have you played favorites? Consider Terence, the Roman dramatist who lived from 185 to 159 BC. Terence said, I am a man, so nothing human is alien to me. And for further reflection, see the book by Armartya Sin. The title is called Identity and Violence. For books this week, I review Gwen Ifill, The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama. New York, Doubleday, 2009, 277 pages.
Few public figures are better positioned to write a book on race and politics than Gwen Ifill, born in 1955. As the moderator and managing editor of Washington Week and senior correspondent of the News Hour with Jim Lehrer, for 30 years the affable and articulate journalist has reported on the sweeping changes in American politics that culminated in what she calls, quote, the Obama effect, end quote. As an African-American woman, she has also lived the story she's reported. And so the professional and the personal collided with this book, which was released, by the way, on Inauguration Day, when critics charged her with promoting and in turn benefiting from Obama's election. Obama is only the leading edge of radical changes that have redefined the role of blacks in American politics. Today, for example, there are over 40 black city mayors. In 2008, 43% of white Americans voted for Obama. An incredible percentage when you consider that John Kerry received only 41%. In 2004. But there are barriers and boundaries everywhere you turn in this house of mirrors. Obama did his best to run something like a post-racial campaign, but Eiffel shows that American society remains far from colorblind. Eiffel's book is almost entirely anecdotal. She devotes one chapter each to four case studies of the new generation of black politics. Obama, Arthur Davis, a congressman from Birmingham, Alabama, Cory Booker, mayor of Newark, New Jersey, and then Deval Patrick, mayor, uh, governor of Massachusetts. She then explores four themes the complex relationship of generation change in which younger black politicians must relate to the older forebears who carried the torch during the days of the civil rights movement when many of them weren't even born. Then there's race and gender, which group is more disadvantaged and which identity helps or hurts more. Third, she considers legacy politics in which a younger generation enjoys the advantages and negotiates the disadvantages of a parent politician. And then finally, the politics of identity that examines how the new generation walks the tightrope of being too black for whites and or too white for blacks. The many stories in Eiffel's book show that there's no such thing as a monolithic black politics. Instead, there are multiple layers, nuances, challenges, and opportunities. For the up-and-coming generation of political superstars, sometimes race helped them. Often, it hurt them. But for all of them, it always mattered. Not a single person that Eiffel interviewed said that race did not matter. My only complaint about this book is that we learn almost nothing about Eiffel's own personal experiences as a highly public black woman. Rather, the book reads like a version of her television pieces, 
scrubbed clean of any private reflections of a deeply personal nature. But since this is only Eiffel's first book, I'm hoping for more good things from her pen. Gwen Eiffel, The Breakthrough, Politics and Race in the Age of Obama. For film this week, I review Summer Hours, 2009. It's a film from France. This film opens with three generations of a French family enjoying the summer in the matriarch's country home. Kids scream and dogs bark. To Frederick, the only one of Helene's three children that still lives in France, she insists upon talking about what to do with the house and its considerable artistic contents after she's gone. After all, she's devoted much of her life to keeping the memory of her uncle, a famous French artist collector, by preserving this house with his works. Frederick assures his mother that it will be so, for he too wants to keep the house in the memories for future generations. But the brother Jeremy lives in Beijing making sneakers, and the daughter Adrian lives in New York. They admit that they're likely never to return to France, and that they care nothing for the house. In fact, they need the money from the estate sale. After the mother dies and the contents are auctioned to collectors and museums, we're shocked to see the obvious. That, for example, a vase lovingly filled with French flowers by the housekeeper Eloise becomes an inanimate object in a museum. In some significant way, the house made a home for the family. But now it's gone. And as the final scene suggests, it's impossible to freeze history and hold on to an idealized and idyllic notion of what constitutes family. Summer Hours, it's in French with English subtitles. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes lived from 1902 to 1967. He was an African-American poet, novelist, playwright, and newspaper columnist. The title of his poem, Dreams. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field, frozen with snow. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 26, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.